0: 16 presents...
1: Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Music and Photography on Sunny 16 Presents On Location. I'm Billy Sanford and today I have a super special guest, Anil Mystery. Anil, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today?
0: Uh, I'm doing great, Billy. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me on. It's a real pleasure.
1: It's a pleasure to speak with you. So
0: Anil, I know you mostly. Uh, I got
1: familiar with you and your work through your uh, previous appearances on Sunny 16 initially. And I suspect that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with you and your work as well. So we won't go into a formal, detailed background because we're going to touch on a lot of subjects through our conversation as well that will touch on various aspects of your background. But one of your recent projects was your book, Hometown, that sort of detailed uh, your experience growing up in Leicester, right?
0: That's correct, yes.
1: And I thought that one of the passages from the intro of the book might be a good jumping off point to get us into a topic of, of music. You know, in the intro, you, you paint a picture uh, of your memories of growing up in Leicester and, and touching on the various sights and sounds and smells of the city. And you referenced uh, reggae sound systems playing in the park on a Saturday and also Bollywood songs pumped into the streets from passing cars and, and maybe whether or not those were, influences that did make me think you know a a lot of our musical tastes are formed in those early years so so could you talk to us a little bit about some of your musical influences
0: yeah i I think well i mean uh growing up in an uh in a house where my, my parents are from india um so for a start there was always indian music playing on the radio so radio leicester was a local indian music station so there'd be all the Bollywood songs that my mum and dad remember from the homeland, if you like. And so growing up with, with that as a background, it sort of a made me realise I was Indian, you know, because I was born in, in the UK. So in my mind, I grew up quite conflicted. I was, you know, brown skinned, but I spoke English. I was English, yet I was Indian. And sort of trying to rationalise my identity was always strange because, you know, at, at that time, being of colour and being Indian, you know, in the 70s in the UK, you were looked down on you know it was almost something you could, you could very easily be ashamed of right. um, and pushed into a corner and sort of made to question everything about how you were brought up but that the music was amazing and it, it's interesting even now i have a, a bunch of bollywood records but i still don't understand hindi the language they're sung in uh, weirdly i worked right. for an indian tv station for a while and i started to pick up the language uh, because i speak gujarati uh, and a lot of those languages are quite linked in the same way. The Latin tongues you know, English, French, Spanish, Italian, they're quite similar. So Gujarati, Urdu, Punjabi, all those languages, they are quite linked. You know, all the swear words are the same for a start. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. But but I, I think melodically and in term, emotionally, those songs are they're so rich and they're so, you know, sometimes they're very sugar sweet. Uh, but in terms of syncopation and beat. They were just incredible, and that that was something that that just really stuck with me, and something I, I did rediscovered later later down the line. But yeah, growing up where I lived, it was a very black Indian area, and back in those days, you kind of took a side. So musically, you were kind of pushed into, you know, you, if, if you you pushed into sort of black music, so it was reggae, funk, soul. Um, obviously, I love pop music on the radio, but weirdly, a lot of my friends love reggae and dub but, but it just never struck me so you know the park um next to my house, it was just on the next street. It was lovely to have a park there, and on Saturdays, all the big reggae and dub sound systems would set up in the park and have sound clashes so they'd there'd be people mixing and playing their music and it was incredible to see right. that the music never struck me i and it's awful even now there's the odd reggae song I like but I've always found reggae in the same way I I equate it to blues. There's just not enough complexity for me. Right. And I find a lot of it gets very samey samey that a lot of the beats become the same. And as a result of that, you, I sort of, you know, I end up switching off uh, and I don't listen to the lyrics and I don't listen to, and I think pace wise, it it just didn't do anything for me, but the funk and the sort of uh, soul music and even the pop music in the seventies and eighties, really hit me you know everything from Jerry Rafferty to Steely Dan but then going into my sisters I've got three older sisters so they'd be listening to you know James Brown Stevie Wonder all the Motown and then all the disco if, and that that was something that really really struck me and and really stayed with me uh, it sort of defined the, the sound that I love from an right. early age okay
1: so what what were some of your favorite albums from that time that If you recall
0: well I I think uh, you know firstly I went when growing up we I I come from a poor family we didn't have any spare money in the house so I we had one cassette player it wasn't even in stereo the first time I owned my own record player was when I became a student and I was 21 that's that's when I first got a record player but growing up I had a friend who lived on my street he had a record player and we listen to all sorts of stuff. So I think a lot of my taste that a lot of things, you know, as you get older, you you go back and remember things that you you listen to and you you buy that stuff. But growing up, I'd say, you know, early 80s. So I was, you know, 10, 12, 13. There was there was a sound on the streets in the UK called electro funk. So to rewind, there was a man called Morgan Kahn. He was a uh, half Asian, half white. He started a record label uh, called Street Sounds, and it was a seminal. He basically brought the, the sound of the, the black sound of the streets from New York, the sound of uh, body popping and break dancing right. uh, to the UK. So he went over there and created this series of albums from, I think it was electro one to 13. I think it went beyond that, but essentially they were compilations of the, sort of the freshest sounds from the streets of New York. And mm-hmm. uh so people like Africa Bambata and the Soul sonic Force and all, all the music of that. I think there was a film called Breakdance One and Break Dance Two. I think over there they were called Breaking One and Breaking Two. Right, uh, yes. And another film called Wild Style. It was that sense of urban, rough streets, but the, the incredibly energetic dancing and electronic music, um, which was crazy. So in my school, everyone was suddenly forming a breakdancing crew and doing <laughs> breakdancing on cardboard mats and breaking their backs and breaking their necks um, that's right <laughs> yeah and that taking coincided... me back to my glory days now <laughs> yeah yeah and that <laughs> coincided with the bmx culture i remember et came out and suddenly you know over here we had a, a brand of bike called rally so we had the rally burner which was the bmx bike over there when et came out everyone wanted a kuhara uh, mm-hmm. they were just the brand and you know s- specking up your bmx and then doing some body popping and listening to some electro that was the sort of <laughs> Thing, but through that, that that this sort of electronic music influence came into music as well because it was such a, a new sound there was just nothing like it because right. people were essentially mixing and scratching and creating sounds from records themselves so it was something that the kids on the streets could take on and own for themselves you know it wasn't coming from their mums and dads it was a totally different sound with robotic voices and vocoders and you know crazy synths and things Right? Um, yeah so okay. there there was a lot of that, I, I think in terms of albums, I, I suppose one way of looking at it is I I, I go by artist okay, um, a lot. So I, I think I, I don't know a good way of doing it. I might list some things out and right. um, we sure. can go into them later down the line. So some <laughs> of the, the artists that have, and groups that have meant a real big deal to me. Okay. I think the first one is Marvin Gaye. He's mm-hmm. my all time hero. He's uh, just, he was just a genius. And I think you could hear his, his self-torture in his voice. I agree. Every album of his career. And he was just an incredible man. He made uh, what's going on my favorite album of all time, which is a total masterpiece. Um, Then um, I I love Motown as a whole. I think it just did something really clever culturally. It brought black culture to white people in America. It It did a major cultural job, but it, it just the groove of Motown and all the artists that came from that it just built such a giant canon of music. Um, right. And it was joyful. I mean, it was truly joyful, uh, beautiful music. Um, and then looking at uh, things like Steely Dan, who I love. Um, right. for, for me, they represent that, that beautiful moment in the 70s and 80s where American music uh, stopped being so tribal. Suddenly, you had this group who were pulling in the best jazz musicians and rock musicians always changing the lineups but it, they their stuff had such a groove it was this mixture of jazz and rock you couldn't quite put your finger on it the lyrics were always you know quite clever you knew they were hinting to something uh usually drugs um, right <laughs> and, and, and illicit sex which is and but they they and they're still they they are just timelessly cool and every time i listen to them you know all their albums they do something incredible And then another artist who's a big, big part of my life is Herbie Hancock. So from his Blue Note days, just as a pianist, from working with Miles Davis, but then the way he took on electronics, I believe he was the first, with his band The Headhunters, they were the first group to tour the country with a Moog synthesizer and started to use synthesizers in a big way. But his album Thrust uh, 1974 is a a masterpiece. It is. Just incredible, and it was, it was that era. And you get this a lot in in, in music. You get, you know, it, it becomes very tribal. And I call it the train spotters. You know, some people get really get so passionate. You see it in photography as well. You get your Leica fanboys and your Nikon fanboys. <laughs> and what happened? What Herbie Hancock did really well was bridge. You know, he came from the, the traditional world of jazz. You know, he he had proper jazz chops. He could play the piano, but then he started to introduce electronics but took it his own way and that album thrust it's it's just the most incredible piece of space funk and um unfortunately you know it's sad that the term jazz funk has a bad name in in lots of places I think it's a it's it's a brilliant mixing of genres and you know and like with all genres you get good and bad in it but Herbie Hancock I think it through every decade he's reinvented himself and done something incredible then there's the vibraphone player, Roy Ayers, who's a okay. jazz musician. He's done so many albums. He's done a, a bunch of uh, soundtracks as well. His music, there was just a beautiful soulful warmth to it. And then, okay, um, Sheik, uh, the disco <laughs> band. Again, right. culturally, they did so much. They did, you know, not what Nile Rodgers and Sheik did in America and the, the way they brought a black groove to white music. For artists like David Bowie the power station and so on um he's absolutely pivotal in creating this this a really stripped down funky Groove and the production on chic albums is just stunning it's, it's just such a beautiful emotional warmth other people I love um Lalo Schifrin, the composer the guy who did the uh theme to mission impossible right um and did I believe in the dirty Harry films as well again just you know big orchestras doing funk though you can't beat that and for me that that giant sound that expansive sound is is something i really really enjoy okay going down the list i've got the par- parliament funkadelic family so that's george clinton Bootsy collins parlette the brides of funkenstein and everyone that came with that they they create a whole culture between them scott walker who actually was an American artist who came to the UK in the sixties could have been as big as the Beatles, but then sort of disappeared and then reappeared in the nineties doing some really, really amazing dark albums. But again, the production on his stuff was great. And then, you know, people like a tribe called quest MF doom. There's a British artist called Lone who's he's, he's quite young. He does essentially modern dance music. But using old-fashioned synths, so right. I, I could go on, but I will stop because I, I could really, really go on. Uh, there's a lot there, so I'm happy to unpick some of that if you want.
1: Right. Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot to unpack there, and you touched on a lot of very familiar themes for me. Of like, you mentioned the break dancing at the beginning. That was that was sort of a thing when I was a teenager. So a lot of Fond memories of, of me and my friends doing our lame attempt at, at trying to <laughs> <laughs> embrace that lifestyle. But the soul music, of course, you mentioned Motown, which is uh, sort of, uh, you know, iconic catalog of music coming out of, De- out of Detroit, but not far from where I live. Actually, there's uh, so Stax Records was out of Memphis, Isaac which Cates. is which is, yeah, exactly, Uh, just a few hours away from me. And then even closer is the Muscle Shoals. They had a notable recording history with uh, Aretha Franklin and uh, Percy Sledge and the Staple
0: Singers. I saw Aretha live, I was really a real privilege. I was at a conference in San Francisco in the late 90s and it was a pure diva moment. Aretha Franklin arrived and she rolled up so everyone was sat on their seats at this massive auditorium, and Aretha came down the centre, on a driven on a golf cart with a towel around, her, <laughs> and got onto <laughs> stage. And man, she just blew everyone away. That voice was just amazing, amazing. I think that you you had this whole well, the singers who who learned their craft in the church, you know, in gospel groups, right? Um, and th- that. That soul, it's weird, I'm not religious at all, but gospel music can really stir me. In fact, well, any religious music, you know, there's a, he died, an artist called Mizrat Fateh Ali Khan. And there's a, a style of singing uh, called the guzzle, which is a, a, a religious sort of just professing your love for God. But it's very, very spiritual. He actually had a song in the UK charts in the 90s. And it, so I, I think across the board, culturally, I think when people are singing in a, in a, devo- in a devotional way, there's something really special about that. You know, I, I think it's almost the best of religion for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think for me, that that's the essence of soul. I agree. You know, uh, there's no better word for that genre of music. And it, it's tricky when you start talking about genres because, you know, everything gets put into parts and music is about crossovers, as you know. But you know i think that term soul in the same way the term rock i love it it just really says it, it does what it says <laughs> on the pin, right you know it's a, you know what you're gonna hear uh but there's so much crossover in the middle there but i i yeah i i think you know when people pour everything into their music and you know that they're, they're doing that and they're not just doing it by the numbers you, you you know it and um you know you can feel that and i love right. that about marvin gay for me he just his voice you know you you felt joy and pain at the same time there's nothing like it
1: exactly i mean you 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 certainly got the sense that he meant what he was singing he wasn't just uh you know parroting words off of a lyric sheet
0: yeah he had a a very strange life i don't know if you know he his father was a pastor um and ran a church a strange almost a cult Mm -hmm. And his father was jealous of him because all women love Marvin when he sang in church. <laughs> his father were, and his father used to basically come home, dress up as a woman and beat Marvin with a belt.
1: Oh no, yeah. And
0: he it was, it was very messed up. And sadly, that's the way And he ended up. Yeah, he, he you know, he, the way he died was, you know, his his life was almost, I don't know, his, his life was the way, he, it's to describe it. it. was just a, a painful time itself, but with so much amazing stuff that happened in it. And I, I think, you know, the, the joy and the pain that came together, that his father shot him as well. Um, yeah, very tragic. Ending. Just tragic. Yeah, just tragic. But he is, in a way, he couldn't have created that music without being the person he was.
1: I would agree. Yeah. Uh, it, it certainly seems that way. So uh, going back just a little bit, you, you mentioned you didn't get... A record player until you were 21 but then once you did get a record player you you were able to get into a little bit of uh uh exposing other people to music
0: right yeah and, and so i mean so um i had a, f- a friend a, a geeky white boy called chris who was on my <laughs> university course and he was the most middle class respectable bespectacled guy who he's actually an incredible photographer as well But I was really into hip-hop, and so I was playing him lots of hip-hop. But And he was then telling me the jazz tracks and the soul tracks that those hip-hop tracks had sampled. So I got Mm -hmm. really got into the jazz and soul, because I I didn't really know a lot of the artists. I knew what I knew. But Chris, his music knowledge and collection was was quite staggering. So suddenly he opened up my eyes to all these artists, that Public Enemy and A Tribe Called Quest and all these people I loved. Where you you know where the samples came from, suddenly I was finding all these tracks and all these albums, and so I started buying vinyl like crazy. Um, I mean, I yeah, uh, my 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 student uh, debt got rather large through the purchase (laughs) of vinyl. But as you know, you know when you get into something, I I can't do it by halves. So I was I was all in, and. um, so we 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 started making each other mixtapes and, you know, playing music, uh, getting people around to our flats and stuff. And um, we knew, I knew a, a couple of older guys who, they were 10 years older than us. Uh, so they were in their 30s, we were in our 20s and they weren't students, but they had good record collections and I was good at marketing as well. So we decided to get together and this was in, uh, in the um, early 90s in the UK where... there's a term that that was derived it was called acid jazz um so Mm -hmm. Giles Peterson he was a very famous DJ and broadcaster in the UK and a music compiler as a joke he started a jazz label because at the time there was a style of music called acid house so people were dropping acid listening to house music they called (laughs) it acid house so as a joke he started he he coined this phrase acid jazz and it was basically just pulling together modern bands that were playing jazz and soul music but as well as that they started reissuing a lot of famous really rare pieces of soul jazz and funk from back in the day in compilations right. so suddenly they were teaching a whole generation of kids <laughs> of the stuff from back then and that was great because to find these albums and know about them in the days before the internet was impossible right so now you could go to the you know record store <laughs> and and just find these compilations and it was uh it was it was re- it was a re- revolution and a revelation <laughs> uh, so we started um a little crew we called ourselves bad vibes and we started uh djing and doing student nights in a in a goth club in leicester so it's a club okay. that traditionally played indian goth music but we started taking it over every friday night and we Killed. It. I mean, we we it was not ideal. I mean, we went way over fire regulations. We one <laughs> night we we packed we packed two thousand people into a five hundred club. Oh wow! Um, and we had people who couldn't get in. It was absolutely crazy, and people loved it because we were playing disco, soul, funk, and then you know these older guys had really rare stuff, and all these people from the community who loved that music and couldn't hear it anywhere else were popping up out of the woodwork. We end up having jazz dancers on the floor doing their crazy stuff, and it got really, really big. And by the end of university, we were almost going to start a record label of our own and start to do our own compilations and stuff. But I decided yeah, I need to follow my, you know, my course and go into that world of graphic design and TV and stuff <laughs> that I wanted to do. But it became, you know, it, w- it was a massive success. But we were good at selling it as well.
1: Right, right. Well, I wonder if you have any. You know this is a little bit of foreshadowing because i, w- I want to given your background in the visual arts i wanted to ask you about how photography moves us. but but might as well jump ahead uh, or, or, or or speak to that from a musical standpoint because music does move us physically right i mean our our neighbor has two young children one just turned three the other is uh, just a few months old but you know whenever they're over visiting and and someone will turn on a song and they just start dancing it's like uh, some something is hardwired in in us to uh respond to rhythm and tempo and and all of these things
0: yeah absolutely i i mean it, it's an interesting thing isn't it because i always wonder if i was when i was growing up if i was in an environment where i was listening more to i don't know uh rock and, indie music, for the sake of argument, would right. that be the music I loved because I was exposed to it? Or was my love for a particular kind of music, did it come from somewhere else and the desire for a particular thing, if that makes sense? You know, how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture? Exactly, um, yeah. I, I think it's a bit of both, but for me, I, I think it was, it, it was nature for me because I've found throughout my sort of musical journey, i I've I'm constantly searching for this particular thing i i'm I'm trying to find something. I'm not sure what it is, but I keep looking for it
1: right, right. Well, uh, uh, just going back to the club days for uh, a second and and this goes back to some of your favorite artists and influences were were there any songs or beats that that were guaranteed to get the crowd riled up on those okay, Friday well, nights?
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, going back to the, your your thing about rhythm um, right. A perfect example is um, Chic, Good Times. Okay. So when you hear Bernard Edwards' bass line, Mm -hmm. you cannot help but start to nod your head. And the interesting thing about Chic was that the sound they created sounded massive, but it was quite a small, tight group. You You know, they had Tony Thompson on drums, Bernard on bass, Niles on lead guitar, and the Chic strings were about three people. That was it. It was a really small, but the, the expansive sound they created and then with the, with all the vocals uh, behind. I, again, it was just such a, there's there's something really primal about that sound, but also the way they use their strings and the way they use their chords just lifted you. Uh, it, it just absolutely elevated you. So for, for, as an example, that's, that's a great one. Another artist I think who really knew a groove was James Brown. Uh, apparently he was a total piece of shit. <laughs> um a horrible guy apparently um he would right. he, he he wanted absolute control and he used to on stage fine his band members if they missed a note and you'd mm. apparently there are films of him in concert at the Apollo or whatever where he's putting his hands up like five five fingers right. up because he's fining his players five dollars a time when they missed a beat. Oh, no. But 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 what James Brown did was he really, really pushed that sound, that funk sound and got people to, to you know he went off on one i mean his, his music was incredible so again that just that that tight funky groove there's something about that that really gets people going but then on the other side i think that there's, there's so much just beautiful jazz stuff out there as well a good example is okay there's a track by herbie hancock called uh, bring down the birds so it's on an album called fat albert rotunda uh but it was it was the the groove from it was used by delight when they did Groove is in the Heart. Dun 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 so and they just looped the hell out of that, basically. And it it's just brilliant. And it I love that thing of there's certain hooks that just get people going. Right. and usually they're incredibly simple. so I I I do agree with you. I think there's something within us that sort of likes that and needs that, that that sort of pattern but there's something incredibly pleasing and i think that's why the, the best tracks out there you know it's it's very rare that a totally shitty piece of music becomes an absolute success unless it's ed sheeran of course but when you come back <laughs> to real music good the good shit, right that stuff is it's simple but it's tight and it, and, and and it's incredible across genres
1: it is, and 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 that sort of touches on something you were mentioning earlier, where some of the, some of your approach early on wasn't. Uh, so what you were just talking about are are, is music that's very well produced, and in your past you, either in addition to artists or in, rather than looking for artists, you looked at producers, right? Yeah, and sort of uh, discovered what acts they had worked with.
0: Yeah, I, I, for me, it's when I got into my music, because as you know, <clears throat> artists work, work with different producers and arrangers all the time. So their sounds always change because they have to across the ages and they're trying to find their groove or whatever. <laughs> but I would find the music I really loved and then find out who produced and arranged it. And then my my musical journey would then be to find out what else that those people had been behind so a good example there was a band in the late 60s in america uh, on the argo cadet chess label called the rotary connection Mm -hmm. and they were a manufactured band that were meant to be a sort of cross between sly and the family stone and i can't remember there was a, a rock band but the the sound they had behind them it was I can't even begin to describe it. There's an epic song they did called I'm the Black Gold of the Sun. And it's a masterpiece. It's orchestral. It's just a journey, a trippy journey through sound. And it has that lovely sense of the 60s, but it builds and builds and builds. There was a a female vocalist called Minnie Ripton who was part of the Rotary Connection. So the the, the person behind that was a producer called Charles Stepney, and he did a lot of the music for that era. So he did stuff with the pianist Ramsey Lewis um he did stuff with minnie Ripperton. uh she has a a masterpiece of an album called come to God, come to my garden which is just absolutely mind-blowing and then they they sort of crossed over with earth wind and fire as well but basically the the sound that they created it was okay the best way i can describe it was big orchestra right but trippy it, it was trippy there was something slightly psychedelic about it and off-key and just a bit mm-hmm. almost scary um, but then there was rock influence in there, but it was essentially that whole wall of sound thing. It's just, there's so much going on and so much to unpick. And it's that complexity that I love, but it's that some of the parts become so much greater than the whole. Right. Uh, we, it just blew my mind. The fact that it was happening back then, back in the late sixties, <laughs> but the, um, and uh, Phil Upchurch, the guitarist, he produced one of his albums. Uh, so everything Charles Stepney did, I, I then went out down a rabbit hole of discovering him. There were two guys called the Mizell Brothers, Larry and Font Mizell, who did some Motown stuff, produced some Motown stuff. But then they produced Bobby Humphreys, Donald Byrd and a gospel band as well. So they they then started producing lots of jazzy stuff in the 70s. And again, so many layers and so much complexity in their sound. Just incredible. Uh, even now, I, you know, I could listen to some of Donald Byrd's albums just endlessly and without getting bored. Right. Um, and then I want to touch on the French stuff as well. There are two producers who, again, created such a dark, sexy, rich sound. Uh, there's a guy called Jean-Claude Vanier, mm-hmm. and he produced a bunch of albums. Um, he produced the uh, French singer Serge Gainsbourg. And his stuff, again, <laughs> it's a trip. It, it's just abs- just beautiful, beautifully lush. It's very sexy, but it's as dark as hell as well. And then there's the other guy, Alan Gorger, who produced some Serge Gansberg stuff, and he did a seminal movie album, uh, soundtrack, because I'm mm-hmm. a big fan of soundtracks. And there was an animated film called La Planet Sauvage, or Savage Planet, or Fantastic Planet, depending right. which country you're in, uh, which came out in 1974. And the album, the soundtrack for that, He's unlike anything you've heard before. Uh, the film is an animated film. It's, I think it's an allegory about, you know, communism, basically. But it's a science fiction feature film that's animated, very dark, very weird, set in this alien landscape. And the music that goes with it is just terrifying, but right. sexy at the same time. That's the best <laughs> I can describe it. And then going into the disco world, of course, Nile Rogers, he produced so much stuff. Interestingly, he actually produced a Johnny Mathis album, which was never released <laughs> because, um, and he might've done something with the Carpenters as well, because when right. he became hot in the seventies, everyone wanted to work with him. So he, exactly. obviously, he transformed the careers of David Bowie. He revived Diana Ross. Uh, but that sound is timeless. And then when disco became house music, would uh there was a, a disco arranger called patrick adams and a vocalist leroy burgess together they worked on so many albums uh but anything they produced i mean anything i, I went down the rabbit hole and bought every single thing that they put together but there's such an interesting but they almost between them invented house music uh, okay. they took disco into space into the stars and and just took it somewhere else but it had touches of gospel it was just so lush in its production right i'll touch on a few others quickly because i don't want to okay. bore everyone because I, as <laughs> you can see I'm, I'm very passionate about my music uh quincy jones um oh a, sure a total legend again like herbie hancock he's revived himself across every era but he when he got together <clears throat> with the there was a, a band in the uk called heatwave in the 70s they did a track called boogie nights and uh quincy jones heard this track and he got Rod Temperton who's uh, just a, a white guy with a mustache who was part of Heatwave who wrote the song and arranged mm-hmm. it he got him over and so he asked Rod Temperton basically to um he wrote and arranged most of Michael Jackson's Off the Wall and Thriller right but basically Quincy Jones and Rod Temperton became a dream team in the 70s and 80s and they produced some of the most incredible albums from everyone from from uh, Kenny Loggins mm-hmm. um to uh, Michael Jackson, to uh, Chaka Khan. And there's so much amazing stuff they did together. Uh, Just a very distinct sound. Then there's two more I'll touch on. (laughs) Sorry, this is just becoming me listing things. and just going, and this, and this, and this. Um, Sorry, listeners. It's Um, (laughs) good for me, though. (laughs) Um, Trevor Horn, uh, British Mm -hmm. producer. He was in a band called Buggles, but then he uh, produced uh, the music for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And Mm also, uh, um, Slave to the Rhythm, Grace Jones, Trevor Horn's Sound hit so many albums and he was such a great inventive producer using electronics and synths, but again, having that big lush production sound. And then two more Creed Taylor, (laughs) there's a a jazz music label called CTI Creed Taylor Mm -hmm. International everyone from Bob James to George Benson to there's so many albums they produce. But another interesting thing about CTI records is the photography on their album covers was mind blowing. Mm -hmm. I was going to try and find, there's a book called the color of jazz, which is all about the photography. I've got it somewhere. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, this creed Taylor, his productions were incredible. And finally, R D Berman, who's an Indian producer and he made some of the, the craziest wackiest funkiest albums Bollywood has ever ever heard (laughs) I'll stop there and give everyone a breath sorry (laughs) no no that's that's
1: a that's a great list I think I think and and certainly you know we've touched on disco a couple of times now so far in the conversation and 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 I certainly have a lot of fond memories because I I was a child of the 70s myself I mean why why do you think people react the way that they do it was obviously very hot and in, in, in its time but now some people kind of look down on it what are what are your thoughts about that
0: yeah it's funny I think that one thing happened in America and Mel Rogers actually spoke about it and I think a lot of people feel the same way there there was basically quite simply one there was a movement called Disco Sucks what happened was in the 70s the airwaves suddenly got taken over by black music Mm-hmm. This pissed off a lot of white radio stations because white people were going into the the other end of town, going to these discos and listening to black music, and even you know loads of rock bands took on disco sounds. As you know, in the seventies, suddenly Rod Stewart was doing disco. Everyone <laughs> had to do disco. Right. The point was, disco is is you imagine well for me, okay, disco is the evolution. You had the blues, you had funk, you had jazz disco then added a, a higher tempo to that which then down the line became house music became all sorts of other genres of music for me disco is just the, the music that people dance to and always right. has been uh, but that was the form it took in the 70s and 80s for me it's, there's a, a purity about disco and it is just pure joy and good disco is mind-blowing bad disco is shit. there's a <laughs> lot of bad disco because everyone was trying to pu- push out a disco album as you know Right. Um, in the 70s uh, it just became the thing to do but good disco music is absolutely timeless it's it's when you look at the production behind it, there's full orchestras behind this stuff you know it's right. it's beautifully written you have incredible percussionists and musicians putting stuff together and so there's disco and there's disco in italics underlined in bright <laughs> lights which is the stuff that like chic which stands a right. test of time. Just just incredible music. Yeah, for me, it, it just it's the stuff that put a smile on my face and it's the stuff that just it was pure joy. Right. You know, and I love that about it. But the whole disco sucks movement movement where a bunch of DJs, white, white DJs ended up smashing disco records in a was it a, a, a baseball stadium or something?
1: That's right. Yeah. That I was racism that was...
0: at its absolute highest. It was okay we don't like this music it was white privilege in the worst kind of way for me right and it, uh, because it was that a sense of trying to bring back the tribalism and what disco did was broke down a lot of barriers in music and that was the point that was the great thing about suddenly Nile rogers and disco was being and that groove was in everything the rolling stones did disco right you know and right. um, and they just and and that that was amazing and for me you know the the, the fact that all these barriers were broken down across genres, uh, made music a lot more interesting. I agree.
1: It's it's such a, um, it's another, it speaks to the power of music. I think that it can connect people when it, you know, on the positive side of we've talked about some negative sides to it, but on the positive sides, you know, people from completely different backgrounds uh, you know, you talked about the uh, the sort of um, mix of cultures in Leicester when you were growing up and, yeah. and the exposure that that gave you to people from different backgrounds or different cultures or different interests and in different sorts of musics or or whatever. So I, I, I would agree. I mean, I, that makes complete sense to me that disco was the, you know, an evolution of the musical stylings. Um you know, from from rock to soul to funk to jazz to you know disco was was just another step in that evolution and, that has know,
0: for, for crossed me me. some
1: barriers. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm talking about barriers and, and the, the tribalism of it. I I, I had a friend uh, Paul, uh, one of my student friends, and we'd sit down and we just introduced each other to our sounds and we had a great time. So I'd introduce him to funk and funk and soul, and he he blew my mind. He was suddenly playing me. Bad brains, no means no, Jello Biafra, and all that sort of alternative tentacle stuff. That crazy sort of post-punk, American, the government sort of uh, right. rock stuff, which just was incredible. You know, um, the Dead Kennedys, right. uh, Alice Donut, Lard, all those bands that were just sort of grotty, and every album was just you know looked like it was photocopied and, but. Again, Jello Biafra, the guy that was the vocalist behind Lot that ended up working with Ice T.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, in terms of that, that, you know, the rebellion and, you know, an anti establishment message, that these people were on point. There's a really famous film called Judgment Night, mm-hmm. it, it, yes. an American film, uh, came out in the 90s, which has got an amazing soundtrack where it's got this sort of crazy rock stuff and crazy hip hop stuff together. Right. And for me that that was it was just an interesting time in the 90s in music. <laughs> Everything was crossing over.
1: It was. So are you still buying vinyl today or did you ever stop?
0: I I would say I I slowed down a lot when I had kids. Firstly because mm-hmm. I had to put the records out of their reach. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so all the vinyl ended up ended up upstairs because I didn't want them wrecking it, but also, you know what, nappies aren't cheap. Oh, and that's um, true yeah you're you have to suddenly go okay there's stuff i love i love and it would be nice to have that record but i don't really need it i i I need to buy baby stuff and there's more important things i need to put my money into (laughs) but i what i have done is i i've carried on so throughout the years i would say my the, the amount of records i buy has dropped exponentially but i still do if there's something i really want or need or discover i'll go out and find it if i feel i need it um mm-hmm. I'll find that on vinyl if it's something that really sort of gets me going I'll search it out okay. um, like a detective and find it and make sure I I, I have it because uh, <laughs> there's just something nice about the, the medium which I love
1: so we kind of touched on it a little bit uh your your background in the visual arts and I think maybe you told the story uh that it all started with uh, drawing a duck at age five can you can can you walk us through some of your uh, exploits in the in the graphic arts and and how you got into photography yeah, sure. to begin
0: with? Okay, so I I love drawing. I think everything came from drawing. When I was a kid, I drew all the time. Uh, my uncle worked for a printers. I'd go to his house, and he was quite a stern, scary guy. And I my dad would force me to go over there and ask him for paper, and I'd have to sit there and listen to him lecture me on important things in life apparently and then finally he'd give me a wad of paper and i could run home and just draw and draw and draw but i love drawing cartoons my my ultimate dream as a kid was to work for disney i ended up working for disney it wasn't as nice as i thought it would be Um, but so drawing was a part of what i did i loved uh, graphic design so i started in in leicester there are a lot of uh, textile factories just local uh, factories where they made knitwear and clothing I started designing t-shirt designs for them freelance just for rubbish money, but it got me into this idea and made me realize that my skill had a value. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was from the age of 15. I was literally knocking on doors of factories, factory buildings, asking to see the owner and saying, can I sell you some of my ideas or can I do some designs for you? I got ripped off left, right and center, Uh, but that, that honed my skills. It honed my business skills. I ended up designing, especially in the 90s when the rave music scene was big, I designed a bunch of music um, and rave music streetwear brands. Uh, so I developed my own brands. Um, one of them was really successful uh, across the UK, and France and America. And it ended up in the V&A Museum, the Victorian Albert Museum, as part of a, uh, an exhibition on the history of British streetwear. So okay. that was a really nice thing. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And it taught me a lot just through it all being self initiated. And again, I I don't come from a background where I had any contacts in any of the creative arts or any of that business, everything was self driven. So I've always been self driven in that way. So for me, it was just about trying shit and see what works and (laughs) see what sticks. Um, And then I got into um, beyond the street where we got into the music thing. um, And then I Started working a lot of my visual work was mainly as a director and a creative director in TV. So I worked for Paramount for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I worked for Nickelodeon before that, so I was directing live TV and I learned a lot of um, the technology behind that. But for Paramount, I was overseeing lots of creative teams, I was doing lots of directing, so I was directing film shoots. And weirdly, it was strange, but at the time, my mind was more in the storyboarding of the idea and the concept and controlling the shoot as opposed to even giving a damn about the camera they were using or the film. I didn't care. I was just about the end result. Um, I studied animation, so all those skills came together. There was a a TV show called Spaced for which I designed the title sequence. Um, So that was Edgar Wright, the film director. That was his show. I did some other work for him as well. There was another TV show called Black Books. I designed the titles for that. I've always found that once I've done a thing, I need to move on and try something else. (laughs) I've always been very impatient. I ended up directing uh, some uh, comedy for TV. Uh, I performed as well. I did stand-up comedy. Um, I wrote comedy, um, directed it. What else have I done? And then um, the the photography thing happened uh, through me just, wanted to just try something new. I, 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 at university, I I did photography as a module, but I'm slightly colorblind. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't see in a dark room. So that put me off it for years. So it was only about seven years ago. I just picked up a camera again and thought I'm gonna teach myself this from scratch and see what I can do because I'd built up lots of a visual sense, if you like, from all the other stuff I'd done. Let me see if I can apply that to the still image. so it's now my—it's taken over the music and the vinyl thing as my my new obsession. <laughs> okay.
1: Well, do you have any? Uh, you know, photographers especially would be familiar with uh, things like the rule of thirds or the golden ratio or whatever it is that they call it. But but as a person who has spent a lot of time thinking about graphic design and the visual arts and that sort of thing, do you have any kind of Insights into, you know, what what appeals to us as as you know when we look at a picture and we say, wow, that's a beautiful image, or it was very well composed, or, you know, if we're if it, if it, it, you know it more on on the financial side of things, if a company is spending big money to design some marketing logo or something, and I, do you have any insights into? how the visual impacts us as as humans
0: yeah I mean uh, we are I I think okay the first thing I'll say is from what I've learned because I do a lot of work in marketing and advertising I develop campaigns mm-hmm. for big brands and things uh, I think we are essentially very very simple creatures um, <laughs> that is the reason why a lot of advertising is sexy a lot of it is funny it's it's core it's it's you know, it goes back to the R section of the brain. It's just the stuff that we really respond to. Um, A famous um, advertising guy, he said, basically, if you think of your human brain as a man riding an elephant, Mm -hmm. right? Your rational brain is the man on top of the elephant. The elephant is your instinctive brain. So the elephant goes, oh, McDonald's and pulls you towards McDonald's. (laughs) Your rational brain is trying to steer you, you're the rational brain that the, the 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 rider of the elephant thinks they're in control, but they're not. Right. And so we are a lot of it comes down to really, and sadly, this is why, you know, half the photography on Facebook is just guys trying to do really crappy, erotic male gaze, terrible, terrible nudes and, you know, chicks in with tattoos sat in fields looking up into the sky meaninglessly and thinking right. they're creating art. It, it's just, it, it, just they they're sort of missing the bigger point you know yes people respond to sexual imagery but it's 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 you have to you can do sexy in a clever way you you don't just have some bird with their clothes off it's just i find you know it's cringe worthy um right. i think the the other thing is what what a lot of photographers do and that that's where a lot of that comes from is photographers are just trying to copy what they think is is cool or what they think is artistic or good photography and I think the only way good photography and artistic photography comes is through actually absorbing art and absorbing film and absorbing culture full stop you can't just pick up a camera and start you see it a lot they're just trying to mimic a particular kind of product shot or particular kind of nude or a particular kind of you, you, it's actually beyond that. It's not just about copying and just, you know, watching a five minute YouTube video. For me, the real skill comes through, you know, sadly it comes through years of actually absorbing culture. Right. Um, a good example, if you watch a film by Wong Kar Wai, it's called In the Mood for Love. It's a mind blowing piece of just, cinema. see, it's uh, just a stunning piece of cinema. Uh, if you look at, you know, I could sum up street photography by the Edward Hopper painting "Nightbirds," <laughs> mm-hmm. "Nighthawks." Sorry, you know the one—the guy in the cafe, the, the right? At, at night, just sat there in the cafe, the light shining. It's, it's, it's a beautiful image because it's nighttime. It's evocative emotionally, but the light is beautiful because he's at night and the light is spilling out. There is a lot going on there when you unpick it. Right, so you you, it, it does help you have to do some research you have to absorb go to a gallery look at Rembrandt paintings look at this guy who hundreds and hundreds of years ago is creating stuff that's more, more photorealistic than any photo you could ever see in your life right you need to absorb things you need to go off your beaten track look at things you don't normally look at and I think what what's become really bad nowadays is 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 people that, that people just we're, we're so spoiled in terms of just having information at our at our you know fingertips but not taking advantage of it but i do think uh, you you have to develop an eye you know you have to develop a sense sometimes as you, as you know with you know it's like music if one track is just off by a particular chord it doesn't work get that right and you've nailed it it just you know you your the hairs rise up on the back of your neck it's the same with an image. It's like it's really understanding and really appreciating and analyzing something and getting into the act of doing that. You know, mm-hmm. um, you have to think, why is this a good image? You know, why is this a great painting? Why is this a great piece of music? And keep asking that question because there's no one answer. But through asking that, you get to hone your skills of questioning and you get better at being a a better critic of your own work as well
1: right and not just uh going for the low for low-hanging fruit so to speak and 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 creating an image that speaks to those base base instincts
0: yeah and this is a great example instagrams um algorithms are designed to basically pat you on the back for creating a load of cheesy crap that's the way they work that's why a lot of Instagram pictures that get loads of likes are so generic and so boring. They're like the worst stock photography you've seen in your life. You know, it, it's ignore all that stuff, put away the, the pressure of the Internet and just go and look at what you like. Just ask yourself, so why do I like this? What is it about this image, this photo? What And do your own research, do your own, go on your own journey and that will make you individual. You know otherwise you're just chasing a well-worn path or what everyone else thinks is right and there is no right there's certain things that work there's obviously a technical side but that can come the key thing is develop an eye if you have an eye then you can learn the technical stuff
1: we mentioned at the top that uh you have recently come out with this book hometown that is uh kind of an homage to lester where you grew up and uh this was a project i think as when you were talking to aid on sunday 16 it it unfolded over uh, some amount of time and um you've talked about your your bookmaking process before so we don't have to go into detail with it here but this was i i guess in general was this uh can you at least tell us that part? Did you were these images you specifically made for the book, or you uh, looking through your archives saw that you had these uh, images, and then the book sort of came together and grew out of that?
0: Um, <clears throat> I think, firstly, when 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 I started taking pictures of Leicester, it, it occurred to me that it was a project, and it was a kind of look at an area and a a place that. You, you do, is normally not represented photographically. It also hit me that from an outsider perspective, it's an interesting place because it's right. a bit gritty. Culturally, it's very where um, varied and it's just unique. And I thought, so as, as I started taking photographs of it, I, I didn't have a book in mind, but I knew I'd use that photography at some point if I could. So every time I went to Leicester, I would go out of my way to get as many photographs as I could. So it wasn't like I, you know, from the first shot I knew I was going to make a book. I just started taking photographs because I wanted to. But ultimately, as they started to build, I thought, I, you know, what? I, I think I've got something here. Uh, so I'm going to work on it more. So then, further down the line, the later photographs were more. You know, I was going out onto the streets with more intent um, right. to really, really try and think about what I was doing. And really try and think, what am I trying to say with this? What am I trying to do? And then, you know, as usual, get my mind into knots, and then just uh, (laughs) realize, look, just go, go with the flow, go with what you feel, uh, and and do what works that way. Otherwise, I'll never put the book out.
1: (laughs) Right. Well, one of the things, and I, I, you know, I was following along because you were posting on social media as you were putting it together, and as you had the proofs and everything, and so as soon as you said it was it was available. I had ordered a copy, which I've been enjoying. And one of the uh, techniques that you used in the book was this uh, 3D photo montage. Sure, you could have had an image of just uh, a, a big notable building, but adding this sort of out of focus figure in front of it really adds to the image, I think, for sure. Yeah,
0: it's it's interesting because that, that the process comes with its own interesting things that happen. So obviously when you put something in front of something else, it, it might cast a shadow. So then when you take mm-hmm. the photograph, it looks like a scene, but then there's a shadow, it, there's just a strangeness about it, which I really like. It's almost become becomes a living collage, which I really like, sort of living photo montage, if you like, which just feels very different because it there's I, I, just, I just like that mixing of worlds, 2D slash 3D, which then becomes a flat image. Right. Um, There's something interesting about it. And for me, it's just, again, about I I just love trying things out. There's an, I'm working on another project now, which I, I, (laughs) yeah, which I won't touch on yet because I've got this book on the go. (laughs) But it's something else I've been trying out and working on for a while, uh, which is another play with photography, basically.
1: Okay. Well, you, and one of the other things you mentioned to Aid was some of the older gentlemen in the pubs who look like, Probably how they looked, not all that different from how they looked in the '70s, sitting in the same pub. Yeah, I bet
0: they um, looked as well.
1: But <laughs> so overall, I mean, do you the book as a whole does it does it have the feel of Leicester from when you grew up, or or does it feel to what degree does it feel any different from your memories?
0: I I, I think every city has its own sort of texture. I think best that's the best way I can put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the question is, you know, to an outsider, is, is that does that texture, it just exist in my mind? Or do other people see and feel <laughs> it? I think Leicester has a, a very distinct texture of its own. Uh, right. it's because it, it has such a large Asian population. It just it, the just the makeup of the shops and the people and everything is, is quite unique and quite distinct. There are other parts of the UK i'd say like bolton bradford parts of london that have it but as a city I, th- I think leicester's quite distinct and and for me also what 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 i love about leicester is it you know some parts of it are really run down you know right. just architecturally they're they're a mess you know it's quite an old city but then you've got really new popping up and it, i i you know i for me, it was I, I'm the kid who likes scrabbling around the dirt and finding junk on the streets. You know, <laughs> you know how when you're a kid, you you're not looking up, you're looking down. When you're a kid, right. you're, you're only so tall, and you're looking at the ground. You're <laughs> always picking stuff up off the floor. And for me, I, I love that that sort of gritty world. Um, and that's why I made the book in black and white as well. I think it best captured that sort of texture.
1: Right. Have you gotten feedback from locals, and what what have they had to say?
0: That's an interesting one because uh, it—it's it, weird because I—I—I I, I went back and forth as to whether I, I even wanted to publish the book because because uh, that that city means so much to me. I I kept looking at the book and I think I'm thinking, is this am I should I be representing it in a different way? You know, um, <laughs> you know. But then I I sort of pulled you know I almost felt like am I I, I don't know look, looking down on. On it all a bit and being a bit down on my city but for me again I had to pull myself back because I'm really bad at doing this I I, I start faffing around mentally I, I and I I think the best work comes when you go with your gut right and I so I had to have a word with myself I had to stop yeah. myself say shut up and look you you go with the feeling you want to go with stop over analyzing stop overthinking Go with your, what you feel is right, because if you start thinking, you're then thinking through the eyes of uh, the mind of someone else and looking at it through the eyes of someone else. And that's right. not then your your own vision. So for for better or for worse, do what you feel is right and what you feel is, you know. Um, so I just went with it. And um, so far, I've had good feedback because, again, a lot of my friends have said, this is Lester. This is how I remember it. This is, you know, it, there's a timelessness about it. And there's a sort of a spirit, if you like, or a spiritedness to the photographs that really smacks of the community, but also just the kind of characters and people you see on the streets there and just a life. So, so far it's been good, fingers crossed.
1: Right. <laughs> well, I, I would certainly add my own uh, impressions to that. I mean, it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the images, of course, in the book, but it, it didn't come across to me as you know that you were trying to exploit people who were less fortunate or in hard times or anything like that. It, it felt very much like, you know, that it came from someone who was from there and was trying to capture the sense of of having been from there.
0: Oh, good. That that's all I want. It's as simple as that. I just I just want to be able to feel that you know, because it is weird as well because I don't live there anymore. You know, I spent my <laughs> life there, but it's such a big part of me. My heart is there, but. I live in a very different world now so even in the act of doing a lot of the photography for that book i almost felt like an outsider
1: right okay (laughs) i i can can understand that I, i i do understand that so one of the things that we've touched on a couple of times uh you know you you did come from humble beginnings mm-hmm. uh you pursued uh visual arts despite being colorblind and yet you were able to realize that dream of, of working for disney and nickelodeon and paramount you know and and later on you You've done campaigns for Louis Vuitton and Rolls Royce and Apple and Estee Lauder. I mean, certainly in my book, you've had a successful career. I would think by anybody's book, <laughs> despite these humble beginnings and and having to overcome those obstacles. I, I mean, what what you, what was your own approach, and what tips do you have on on people uh, to help people be successful? To you know, for whatever obstacles they may have to overcome
0: yeah i I think i I think firstly creativity okay i I come from a a background where i remember you know um uh, as a child and even going through college and university i was surrounded by middle class kids who you know just had a lot had seen a lot more in their lives and had a lot more privilege so just even the idea of going to an art gallery i'd sniff Mm at it and it was a defensiveness Oh, right. that's full of arty shit. I don't want to go there. You know, it, it's this. But I think it's important to just open your mind right up. Open it right up. Because we don't realize how closed we are. Mm. We, we have all sorts of preconceptions of all sorts of things. And the only way to to learn is to just absorb everything. And, and you know, I, I think what the way I've approached my creative life is to be like a sponge. Just mm. throw myself into everything I can i'll buy books like crazy and same with music photography everything i get into i won't go into it halfway i just want to know about it and so i think and this is the other point there's no shortcuts there's no quick way to become good at something (laughs) that there there simply isn't because you have to build you know a, a whole world inside your head that you can analyze and referential points and you know concepts and that that comes from studying other people. You know, a good example, you look at, I know, a book by David Hockney. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just sitting there looking at a book. He's gone through his own journey and it's been a journey of a lifetime. His work changes through every decade and every era. There's so much to absorb and I think that there's just no shortcut around it. And the other thing I would say is just, you have to work. You have to just keep pushing. And pushing and pushing and i think for people you know and i'm a big big advocate of this you know i come from a, a social background and a color where we had no we had no place i i was you know in war terms you call it the first generation over the top we, we went over right. the top put ourselves in the front line and we sort of helped to forge a way for the people behind us but when i was working the media in the 90s they were you know the only Asian people worked in IT. Mm -hmm. Put it that way, you know, it was that old cliche. And suddenly, I was a creative director at the age of twenty-eight. But it's because I'd made a point of just—I would—I invested in my approach to what I did. So I was happy to get into debt to do work for free. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a big thing right now. is a good example and there's, there's two sides to it it's that whole thing of you know exposure doesn't pay the bills right you know but there's there's two sides to that if you need that exposure and it helps you get somewhere then do it if it because if it gives you confidence that you've done something for someone you don't have to get paid for every single piece of work i've done a, so much work even now you know i'm 51. And I still do work for free sometimes for people as a favor, because those favors then open doors. Right. And you've got to see it as a two way thing, because, you know, to a stranger, who the hell am I? I'm just some person. I have to prove myself to every single person I meet. Right. Um, and also twice over because the color of my skin. And it's 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 not, a, you know, I don't have a there's, there's no chip on my shoulder. In the early days of my career, I definitely had a chip because it was hard. And I came across things said to my face through every aspect of my career. And you, you saw it overtly and covertly that, you know, people were looking at you askance because of the colour of your skin. What the hell is he doing here? Why is he here? Who is he? Uh, and so you had to work twice as hard uh, to get anywhere. But for, for me, it's, it's the, the, the people who put themselves out are the people who get no, get noticed, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It, it's really <laughs> right. simple. But also beyond all of that is you have to work, put in the hours. You know, right. I've worked my ass off, and you know, when when people say to me, "Okay, you oh, wow, you're so lucky to me," and you know, I said, "There is zero luck in what I've done. I've I've made my own luck. You know, I've I've made the connections. I've made those moments happen because of other things I've done. If I sit on my ass and wonder how to do it, that there's no there's no substitute for just starting. Just do it." Right. just get out there let people know you exist don't be afraid of no and this is the other thing and it goes back to the old street street portrait thing you know some people may, you ask someone if you could take their picture some will say no and they're allowed to and that's fine that's their right but some will say yes and that's right. fine and you have to put yourself out there get over your <laughs> yourself your your your, your, your self confidence thing just go out there because all that can happen is someone can say no. And that's not a big deal because you expect that anyway. But people say yes.
1: I mentioned earlier, I have an 18 year old son. You have two sons that are 22 and 19. Is that right? That's right. It, do we do either of them or both of them? Have they shown any kind of interest in our topics today? Music and photography?
0: Yeah, I, I think we've got quite a creative family. So my wife is an art teacher and a textile designer. Okay. Um, so the boys have been brought up around art and design, though we've never rammed it down their throats. Um, so interestingly, my youngest son—he was very, you know, almost as a rebellious thing. I'm not into art. I'm not interested in, you know. But now he's doing a film degree, and he loves it. Okay. So he's—he's he's become quite, a, you know, an interesting photographer. And is, you know, again, he's got that enthusiasm. So he's not afraid to go out there and do things. So he's—he's he's studying uh, filmmaking and my other son is studying product design okay. um, so there's yeah it's quite a bit of uh creative stuff going on in the family and again it's it's that thing of like that question of nature versus nurture are they doing it because they think mommy and daddy will be happy or are they doing it for themselves and i hope they're doing it for themselves because I, I frankly don't care what they do as long as they're happy that's all that matters <laughs> you know yeah was... enough, in inverted commas artists in the world we all actually need more engineers and more uh, physicists and uh
1: that's right I was I was going to mention the nature versus nurture again Uh, certainly they've been exposed to it but I think you know given that both of their parents are creative that whether they pursued it uh, professionally or not they would probably have some sort of creative outlet I I would suspect
0: yeah and it's it's been nice because we used to live in London and it really hit me sort of the difference between their upbringing and mine, you know, from the age of before they could even remember, you know, they were going to art galleries and, and things. So that that's been a natural part of their life, which has right. been really nice. And I, I think that that's, that's a nice thing. It's just exposing people, you know, there's life isn't easy and there, there's lots of beauty in the world and interesting stuff to that's fill true. your mind with, you know, through sound and image and all sorts of things. So it's, I, I think, you know, Anyone with kids out there, just get them to even at an age before they can remember. Take them to galleries, show them things, and just build their build their their palate. Um, I equate it to food as well. You know, I grew up eating very spicy food and really strange, obscure vegetables that were, you know, my my mum would force down my throat and hating it. And just wanting to eat the sort of frozen crap that everyone else was eating and thinking that, you know, all the stuff that was advertised on TV and thinking, I want that Finder's crispy pancake. I want that bird's eye potato waffle. Whereas my mum was giving me actually home cooked amazing food. And now <laughs> I look back on it and I, I think how lucky I was to have uh, you, 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 as you know, you know, you, you've got kids sometimes they hate a particular thing <laughs> right. you, and it drives you nuts you know and it's like you, you it's important to test and stretch your palate not just right. in terms of taste and food but your visual palate as well your aural you know in terms of sound it the more you put into your mind the more you learn to like and right. appreciate you may not like it but you appreciate it and it stops people from, from becoming boring you right. know it stops people from becoming the people that go to a foreign country that's full of amazing things and they just want to go to the McDonalds you know, those assholes they're they're just the most annoying people. And they're the people who create problems for the world because the world is amazing and everything is exciting. There's so much stuff out there. That's interesting. All you have to do is open your eyes, your mind, your ears and your taste buds and take it in. And that's exciting, you know? And I think to, to, to instill that desire for, for the new, for trying new things is really, really important. Otherwise, it's very easy for people to become very, very closed minded And I think that's the biggest problem with the world today. You know, we just I, need to open our minds up. I think, absolutely. you know, half the world's problems could be fixed by just getting people to go to another country, visit a country you've never been to before, knock on a stranger's door, and go into their house and have dinner. Simple as that.
1: Okay, I mean, it's been brilliant. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been an honor to speak with you. Did it, did we solve all of the world's problems? <laughs> and and say everything there was to say about music and photography, do you I, think?
0: Uh, you know what, I am uh I just want to say to the listeners, I'm sorry, I know I, I've I, I just I'm I'm really I'm really into my music. I know I've listed stuff, <laughs> but, um I could probably uh Bill, I could probably give you a few links to some playlists I've made on Spotify that might get people into what I'm into. That might be a nice yeah. thing for them to uh yeah. try. Absolutely. But um yeah, when you when you're into something, you're into it. And um, you know, the world is about passion, right? um but yeah i hope i hope people find this interesting it's just been real a real pleasure to speak to you bill it's just nice to chat to someone
1: it has been (laughs) very nice so so how can people get in touch with you
0: how can they get the book all right okay so on um i'm on uh my website is uh Mystery Photo.com. that's a-n-i-l-m-i-s-t-r-y photo.com i'm on instagram as Photo. On twitter is annal mystery and the book hometown is available from fistfulofbooks.com all right well thank you so much again annal no, thank you bill it's been a real pleasure
1: thank you again to annal mystery for coming on to share his story I hope you found it as interesting and inspiring as I did. Please do check out his links in the show notes, along with the links to the Spotify playlist he created to share. Thank you also to Mike Gutterman for our theme music, Timeless. Mike makes music for productions available for content creators under a Creative Commons license via his Bandcamp page at mikegutterman.bandcamp.com. And thank you to the team over at Sunny Sixteen Percent for their support. The Music and Photography Podcast is on Instagram at Music and Photography Podcast, and on Twitter at Music, the letter N, Photo Pod, Music N Photo Pod. I'll be back soon with another chat. In the meantime, as John Whitmore reminded us, always try and be a decent human
0: being.